0: Last year we discussed the whole economy of our salvation, about what the plan was and what God had in mind when he created man, and the various things that went wrong um, in our identity, in our living, and in our structure, and the different things that, that our Lord had to fix, and that he fixed in his, in his incarnation. Today I want to focus on a different emphasis, um, which is something we don't talk a lot about um, in our church, because we tend to like to look at things in the totality of things, which is what exactly happened today in terms of redemption. What is it that the blood of Christ actually did? Um, It's something we don't use as much as, as Western theologies. I want to reflect a little bit on the hymn that we sang twice today. I'll read to you the text again. This is the the hymn called Fa'i in, for this is he. This is he who offered himself up as an acceptable sacrifice on the cross for the salvation of our race. His good father smelled his sweet aroma in the evening watch on Golgotha. We worship thee, O Christ, with thy good father and Holy Spirit, for thou was crucified and saved us. Have mercy on us. It's a very short hymn. We discussed when we were created that we were created sinless. We were created in the image and likeness of God. And that meant that we were meant to be holy. It meant we were designed to be perfect. And as a consequence, we talked about sin being the introduction of disease um, in humanity and more specifically disease that leads to death. And this is why God said and the translation that we've been reading in the book, which is, which is accurate, in that day, if you eat of the tree, you will die by death right it's not just you will die you will die by death meaning that now there is an end to you even though i was giving you by grace right i was giving you by your unity with me in the garden by my indwelling in you because man had the holy spirit you were going to be immortal i didn't intend for you to die i didn't want you to die and that's why it's important for us to look at the difference in these theologies to understand what we're saying because if we're saying god didn't want us to die then why are we so death obsessed Um, throughout the Old Testament and with the sacrifices. And so we have this big problem of sin, okay? That man was designed to be in unity with God, but this unity was compromised by sin. A married couple will struggle to be one, right? We know that a married couple is supposed to be united. When each person persists or insists on his or her own will, in spite of the other, right? When a person is absolutely obsessed with having his or her own way at the expense of the other person, right away we see just on a practical level, right, that unity is compromised. There becomes a a shaking. Unless one person is perfect at denying his or her will, then it doesn't last, right? There's going to be an explosion. There's going to be a fight. There's going to be some kind of, of contention, Reaching a unity is hard if you have no objective truth. If everybody just has an opinion and there's no actual absolute answer, then all that's going to happen is arguing, right? Because there's not anything that's going to bring out an end agreement because it's just one person's view over another. However, as Christians, for us, objective truth does exist by the mere virtue of there being a God. Okay? If there is a God, then objectivity exists. And by nature of there being a design, there is such thing as right and wrong. Our relationship with God was disrupted when we insisted on ourselves and our own will over God's. We wanted knowledge, we wanted divinity, right? The devil didn't just, you know, coax Eve with uh, you're going to know stuff, it was you're going to be like God, right? So it was, there was a lust there to actually take on divinity. We wanted many things, and what we definitely did not want was to listen to his instruction. And sin also brought about death as we discussed on so many occasions, and again, briefly, sin is disease. And disease untreated brings forth death. But sin also meant death because we lost the indwelling of God within us, whereby our bodies could have actually continued to be immortal. So sin brought destruction on three levels. On a spiritual level, right, in terms of our of our understanding of our identity, of this thing that's in us, the spirit, the image and likeness of God, of what it means to be healthy in our in our communication with God which is why so many people struggle in their spiritual lives, saying they don't feel God, or can't see God, or don't experience God. It's because you're spiritually ill, or I'm spiritually ill, which came about as sin. It brought physical death, right? And that it brought an end to our unity with God, causing us to actually die substantively. And a disruption of our unity with God. These are the three ways in which our unity, and our, where, where we found death. Throughout the week, we talked about how God was trying to remedy this through our condition while waiting for the full economy to be fulfilled in Christ. He had attempted at maintaining an outward relationship with the children of Adam and Eve. As we read throughout the week, that didn't go very well. Um, Nor did it go well after the flood with Noah and his descendants. Until finally we see the Lord make a special relationship with Abraham. And in Abraham, the old covenant was made, a covenant of relationship and a promise of spiritual wealth, physical wealth even, so long as God's design and sovereignty was honored. Abraham did honor this and became the father of many nations, symbolizing the nation of Israel and its 12 tribes. And to the 12 tribes was delivered the law. And what the law did was give them the knowledge of sin, right? How would they know that stealing is wrong, right, if it's not told to them? How would one know that envy is wrong unless they were told so, right? God revealed this in writing because the remembrance of holiness for the most part was lost, right? At the very beginning, there was there was a memory of what it meant to be righteous, right? But many of us in our own spiritual lives have seen Right, many of us might be able to think back to a period in our lives where we had a very strong, zealous spiritual life, right, and, and where we were very strict on ourselves and on our behaviors, and then we've lapsed so far from it that we don't even remember what it was that we liked, right? But there's a memory that there was something nice. But in the in the history of man, by the time the twelve tribes are there, they've forgotten, right, what it means to be righteous. To them, they don't know what it was like to be Abraham in dialogue with God. They we're in a position of we just know we're the descendants of the promise and God said he's going to give us stuff, right? But they didn't know what they were supposed to do on their end of the, of the covenant. And the law was given to them so they would have an objective ma- measure by which to live, right? That there was an absolute in existence to say this is the right way, right? That this isn't your opinion, Moses, or your opinion, Joshua. This is the opinion of God, right? Saying that this is how you ought to live. But the 12 tribes like Adam and Eve also lived in a unity with one another and God at the beginning. This was the intention. He was saying, let's restore what I intended to do. I will be in your midst, right? And so just like in the Garden of Eden, God was in the midst of them. God lived in the midst of the Jews. And this is why in the hymns um, and in in the writings of St. Paul, you'll see our God who tabernacled with us, our God who tents with us. In modern English, our God who camps out with us, because God was in a tent among the people living among them, right? And so God is saying, I will restore this unity if you honor the same covenant that I made with your forefather and your foremother, Adam and Eve. I will do the same thing with you if you keep the commandment. I'm attempting to reestablish this with you. And... His fire protected and guided them. His cloud sheltered them. They were fed by manna from his hand from heaven. They were guided by the laws he himself declared to them. There was a singular form of worship that knit them together and vividly presented to them God himself. Right, And so they were living in a unity, as we say in, in the tizbah, indescribable. Right? This was a theocratic nation with God as their sovereign ruler and with the law given to them by God himself since it was god who had designed them and should they maintain the law they would be free and they would be holy unto the lord but as we've read throughout the week they were not able to do this right they were not able to keep their covenant in spite of being given all access to himself in spite of him even honoring a temple built by hands even when they built him the temple right when king solomon builds it God says to him and he said to his father David, he goes, keep in mind that I don't really care about your buildings, right? He goes, I lived in a tent for you, right? So your temple doesn't mean that much, but I understand what you're trying to give. I will do it. I will honor it, right? I will live among you, right? But I care much more about your heart. I care much more about you actually honoring the relationship that we have with one another. And God indeed dwelt among them, right? With the, the temple seen as as his capital, right? The place that where he lives, but we saw within no time that the people weren't satisfied with what they had, and the problem of sin was not solved. right? The problem of sin abounded. In fact, the people sinned more and more and more and more. and as a result, God keeps sending them these prophets telling them, "Come back to me and if you do not, right, then I will also forsake you, but you are the one that first forsook me." So then we need to ask, what was the remedy of the Old Testament? The remedy was sacrifice, right? This was what God was using for them, was sacrifice. And it's often asked, why? Why blood, right? Why blood sacrifice? The worship of the Israelites included the offering of blood animals. So what exactly could blood do for sin, right? What is exactly it going to accomplish? Was it cleansing them from sin? Was it forgiving them? Was it making them holier such they would forget what wrong even is? Obviously not, right? Because they were sinning more and more. So if it was supposed to have removed from them, right, the the knowledge of sin, clearly it's ineffective, right, because they were coming up with new ways to sin every single day. In fact, these blood sacrifices definitely could not forgive anyone his sins, right? This is what St. Paul says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If the worshippers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So this blood wasn't purifying them, right? Right? In fact, let's see what God even thinks of these very sacrifices that he ordered for them to offer. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, Who requires of you this trampling of my cords? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. God is saying that he is sick of those sacrifices and does not delight in them. So obviously God is not looking for some kind of physical blood to appease him, right, or to bring him joy. If the issue of sin was just one of blood, then all this bleeding surely should have been enough for him. I would venture to say that if it was blood that he wanted so badly, then he would have just demanded human blood. But it was not blood that he was looking for. So what then was the sacrifice doing? St. Paul tells us about one thing that the sacrifice did do for them. The sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer Sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. Right? So here's a, 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 a physical purification. But even this was limited. That, as he said earlier, in the same, in, or says in the next chapter of the same epistle in Hebrews, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered, make perfect. Right? So it was a form of, of ritual purification. Why is this? Because even if we are to be pardoned from our transgressions, we can never be united with God through some kind of animal, right? It's not an animal that's going to make me reunite with God, and this is exactly what God was trying to fix. I can only return to my original state by being united to God himself, which we'll come back to. No sacrifice is able to do this. So then what was the point? First, to help us understand the need for a solution. That all this blood wasn't doing anything. In having continual sacrifice day after day, they are becoming more acutely aware of the problem that they're unable to be righteous. I'm becoming more and more aware of the fact that I'm able to be righteous, but this is what God wants of me because he wanted me to be righteous. right? I'm, I'm finding myself in a dilemma. Imagine if I'm told that I need to be an athlete and that I need to be fit in order to be one, but I lack an important enzyme that helps me metabolize to make me fit. So I keep eating, but I get fatter and fatter. But I need to eat. If I can't eat, then I'm not going to be able to have the nutrients, right? So every time, I find out that so I find out that I can take a daily dose of enzyme externally, right? I get this external solution for myself, but I have to keep taking it day after day in order to achieve my goal, right? So my daily taking of this dose actually becomes a reminder to me that I don't have the enzyme, right? Instead of it fixing me, right? I'm finding out that. I will never be this perfect being that I'm supposed to be. I'm not supposed to need the enzyme, right? The enzyme is doing something I was supposed to be able to do. But my continual reliance on this external thing makes me realize this thing that I'm supposed to intrinsically be or do isn't there, right? And so the continual sacrifice had nothing to do with God's desire for blood as much as in one level, it was helping them realize their need for righteousness that could not be accomplished through the law. That the, that the continual sacrifice was not fixing them, was not changing them, right? It was not restoring them to their identity. The continual sacrifice showed that it wasn't working and that they were making all these sacrifices and yet not becoming holier. The second thing that it did, the sacrifice, is that it eased their consciences, right? Is that God was giving them a form of reconciliation, right? He's giving them a way to apologize. While preparing for us the true atonement, our Lord Christ, he gave an outlet for the people to make their apologies, which is a holy thing, right? Is that we are supposed to say sorry and make amends when we have erred. It is a good thing to acknowledge your sins and to fix what you did wrong. So this was the surface level purification that a faithful person could stand before God and say, I've transgressed, I'm sorry, and here's something that I am offering. But most importantly, the third part, the third point of of the sacrifice is to help the people understand the link between sin and death at all times. This is the most important reason understanding why blood is in the picture at all. As our Lord said in Leviticus explicitly to them, when establishing these sacrifices, for the life of every creature is the blood of it. Okay, is that the blood became a symbol of physical life, right? It became the way of expressing how something is alive. Blood is the symbol of the life of a living thing, and the reason for death, physical death, was sin, right? In offering blood, it was an understanding that your sin is the reason why death is happening at all. It was a constant reminder to them that this is what it is, right? That's, that's the main point of this. Our God explicitly explains further in Leviticus, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. He's saying it explicitly right? Because blood is of a living thing, this is your atonement. Why? Is that we said blood was used to make amends because it is the sin that caused death to begin with. Every time an Israelite were to slay an animal, he'd be reminded that it is his sins or her sins that caused the death. When we apologize to someone, we're supposed to make amends rather than just say nice things, right? We're not supposed to just... If we stole from someone, Right? Most people don't find it sufficient to come up and be like, hey, I'm sorry I stole from you. Right? There's typically an expectation that you're going to make restitution and restoration for the money that you took. Right? That you're going to offer something back in return for the thing that you, that you took. Likewise, if my transgression is one that killed, right? if it's my sin that caused death, then the response is supposed to offer life back in its place. So, our Lord instituted this sacrifice to help them understand that, that there is a restitution for the error, that there was life. But did sacrifice actually forgive the sin or act as a solution? As we've said, no. But it was helping us toward the goal of real restoration. But knowing all of this was important in order to do so. God wasn't looking for blood to please him, rather, the blood was an aid for the people to understand their predicament, to make amends and to allow an apology. It is not because God was bloodthirsty at all. So then what did man need in order to be restored to holiness? Nothing short of unity with God. And this was never going to come through the actions of the law. This is important among other things because we need to make sure we understand how God was effecting redemption. Redemption. There are various understandings of how salvation was achieved and we need to make sure that we understand properly what our God was doing. And the most famous of these understandings that, that is common in, in the West and sometimes I've heard in the churches um, is a theory that God needed to balance mercy with a need to punish. Right? That there's this, there's this divine dilemma within God of being merciful while being just. And this sounds to some people like a logical thing, but there are many problems with this. To them, those who who adhere to this, the cross reconciles this and ends this inner tension inside of God between mercy and justice. The problem with these are many. The most important issue with this is that God can't have an inner conflict. If God is stable, he cannot have an inner conflict. And if we were to blaspheme, blaspheme, and say that he has a dilemma, how much more absurd is it that this internal, divine, spiritual dilemma could only be solved in a physical expression? Right, that some spiritual dilemma is solved physically on a rational level is is, is nonsense. For this to happen would mean that the Lord changes, right? Because we see that our Lord doesn't require blood sacrifice today. So if the blood sacrifice, if this dilemma that was in him was solved by him changing worship, then we've also rendered our God changeable, right? And our God, one of his characteristics is that he's immutable, he's unchangeable. He declares this himself, I am the Lord, I do not change. Malachi 3, verse 6. Humans have conflicting desires because we are changeable. We are not immutable. We have the ability to be inconsistent. So God can't, before the cross, demand death constantly for sin and then suddenly change after. Or it would mean that he changes. It isn't God that was changing pre- and post-redemption, but rather God was changing us. Right? This is what was changing. It was not our God. There's not a different God in the Old and New Testament. Rather, God was changing his creation. The nature of the new man is righteousness. It's to not sin. Today, when we sin, we are going against our nature. Right? It is not supposed to be our nature to sin. When we choose to sin, we are going against it. God has always been single-minded and loving, the work of salvation has always been to transform sinners who die to intimacy and unity with their creator. And to this, the whole trinity is eternally committed. But there are deeper problems still with this view of God. I speak of this because we'll often hear people say that Jesus died in my place. Right? This is a common um, expression. Um, or he paid all my debts. There can, be a, there can be a proper understanding to paying a debt. Um but I don't know that we're often using it in the right way. That it, it can be dangerous. I was once sent a video, um, of um, an old man who's very dramatic with emotional background music, right? Of, of a train conductor uh, who every day watches a train as it goes down the tracks, um, and he's got his grandson or his son nearby playing. And every day that the train would take a path and they would need to pull a lever to change the train to another track to make sure that it wouldn't, um, so that it would be on route. But unfortunately, and if it goes off route, then, then it would be death to everybody in the train because it would end up going over some, some cliff or something like that. But one day the kid is playing, right? This this man's son or grandson, and the grandfather is, is now faced with a dilemma. If he pulls the lever, the train is now going to kill his son or his grandson that's playing on the diverted route, right? But if the train goes straight, then all of these people are going to die, and now there's this choice that he has to make. Should the father slay the son, or should the people live? And this is this is the wrong understanding of salvation, right? Is that this is creating this dilemma in God of who to kill, as though there needs to be blood. Right? How would our omnipotent God be limited by pulling a lever? Right? Why is this his dilemma? Right? Why does there? Why must there be blood in order for people um, to be saved? This 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 view of salvation is that his blood was given as a substitute for my blood before the Father, and that without this the blood without this blood that the Father was in a state of wrath. In fact, it goes further to say that the Father's wrath was directed at the Son in our place on the cross and will sing songs that say things like the Father turns his face away um, from, from, from his own Son. But how can we accept this? Does this not mean that God can't save without being paid? That in fact our own God then, if this is the case, believes in an eye for an eye, right? And a truth for a tooth? Does this not mean that God can have no fellowship with sinners until they pay? If so, how is that we read of so many stories, which the opposite is true, right? Where our Lord sat with sinners and they hadn't paid anything. Does this mean that there can be conflict within the Trinity? That the Father can be angry with His Son, to whom He is eternally united? And if someone needs to pay the price, then why are we claiming that there is forgiveness? Because it's not forgiveness that we're talking about here. Instead, we're talking about debt exchange, right? Not debt release. We're saying that someone else gets to pay. I was just lucky that I didn't pay, but someone else is paying. There's no forgiveness in this, right? It's just simply an exchange of blame. Can sin even be physically transmitted from one person to another? If the issue is balancing justice with mercy, how is it just for the father to punish the innocent son? On every level, this kind of of thinking is theologically flawed. This is all nonsense. Indeed, we do believe that our Lord is our ransom. For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men. This is from from St. Mark. This is repeated also in St. Matthew. The word ransom means to cover. In other words, God concealed or covered death for us. This is what we mean when we say, for you have covered us, helped us, guarded us, accepted us to yourself. The plan for our covering was from the foundations of the earth. It wasn't something that came up later. St. Paul tells us that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, he destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The plan of redemption was eternal. It was before we were even created. St. Peter explains it by saying You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of the times for your sake. One contemporary father comments on St. Peter comparing Christ to a lamb, and comments that St. Peter is not as concerned about the lamb as much as he is about his blood. The lamb with blood is a sacrificial victim. The lamb is pure and perfect, even as our Ransom, capital R, our Lord, is. And this is how he links the lamb to Isaiah, prophesying that the lamb wouldn't open his mouth when he was brought for a slaughter. The lamb of the Passover that we just read about in one of the hours is a type, it is a symbol of our Christ. But why is there a price? Because sin caused death. The natural law and the spiritual law proclaimed this, and the law itself was totally incapable of curing them from this condition. The law only condemned, but could not bring to life. It could only describe life. What our Lord did was offer the remedy. He didn't abolish the moral law, but He offered the solution to those who want it to be liberated from the effect of death. Is there, according to the law, a debt to be paid for sin? Yes, there is. There is a consequence. It is only in this sense that we say that God paid our debt, right? but not a debt of, of, of needfulness of death. And to whom, though, should this debt be paid? Is it to the Father? We already said this is nonsense. That that's completely unacceptable. Is it to the devil? If so, does that not give the devil a higher authority than God? If our God needs to descend to earth and lower to pay back the devil? Rather, the wages of sin, the price of sin is death for natural reasons, not because of a payment system. The consequence of sin was death, and consequently it was death that needed to be fixed. We have spoken about how sacrifice was made for expiation and for reconciliation to remain in unity with God. But what ended up happening with the Israelites is that their sins, if we want to understand even more deeply what our Lord is doing, when their sins were grievous beyond measure and exceedingly abundant, they took sin to a higher level and idolatry had taken over the people. And so the very people of God, right, who had had a special covenant with him, replaced their God, right, with graven images, with sacrifice, they even sacrificed their children, um, and all sorts of strange things entered them. They had forsaken their God altogether. And God made a final expiation by destroying the city of Jerusalem. This is what we read about in many of the readings throughout the week. The sins of the people were put upon the city, and the city was destroyed while God saved his people in their exile. Was God pleased at destroying Jerusalem? No, but he was pleased that the city was purified and the idolatry was eradicated and that his children lived. Right? If it was about death, he wouldn't have slayed the temple, he wouldn't have killed the city, he would have killed the people. Instead, he takes The sin and puts it on the city and removes the city so that the people live. In this way did our Lord act. Just as all the sins of the people were placed upon Jerusalem and it was destroyed, the Messiah took upon himself the sins of the whole world and was destroyed through his death upon the cross. It is God himself who sets up his own Son as the place of atonement, and these previous sacrifices were all types of him. He is now establishing and showing righteousness not wrath for the people. He is expiating their sins himself. He is offering himself on behalf of the people to ransom them from death. The ransom is to death. Not because he owes them anything and not because the father is angry, but rather because he loves the people and wants to restore them to their real existence in him. He wants them united to him as they were in the garden. So God is not punishing sinners at all in this concept of sin, of salvation. What he is doing is destroying their sin. We cannot understand our Lord's atonement if we don't look at their sacrifice, and that's why our Lord placed it for them as a type of himself. How is it then that he bore our sins in his body? How is it that we say that, God, that Christ became sin? To examine the trials that our Lord went through, that the actual legal trials that He went through from early this morning, late last night, the six times um, that He was held um, under scrutiny, the Lord is being accused of real sin. He's being accused of blasphemy. He's being accused of breaking the Sabbath. He's accused of all sorts of laws, real laws, that they were given to them by God, and that He's breaking... All of these. All of these sins had on it the sentence of death. For all these accusations, whether before Caiaphas, Annas, Pilate, Herod, right, in all of these, he is silent, right, during the actual trial, when he is asked about the transgressions, when he is asked about the sins, in every single instance, in a challenge about sin, our Lord holds his mouth and keeps silent completely. When he's asked why he doesn't answer for the accusations, he remains silent. What he is doing is allowing the curse of the crucifixion. There's a saying, cursed is anybody who hangs from the tree to take hold. We say that God became sin and God became curse. Our Lord is emphatically silent at these accusations and the silence is perceived by them as a confirmation that the accusations must be true, and thus the sentence of death was delivered. He was silent, and he let them prevail. And in so doing, he was slain for sin on the tree, accepting both sin and curse to be put on his account. Even more compelling is that if Christ is the new Adam restoring the old, then you can understand even more greatly the magnitude and the depth of his silence. Because if the accusation is being leveled at mankind, that, that this man blasphemed and put himself in the place of God, well, this was the sin of Adam. Adam did put himself in the place of God. The people did break the Sabbath. The people did blaspheme the temple. This is why our Lord was expelling from them just earlier this week every single sin of which they accused their God, not knowing he was their God, they themselves were guilty. Adam was guilty, and for this reason, our God, the new Adam, accepted on himself the accusations and took the guilty sentence for us. But something greater is happening than even this. Our Lord had united himself to our body he became a sin. He became sin, a vessel of destruction, as Saint Paul says. When they say that there are, there, are, there are vessels made for destruction and vessels made for righteousness, our Lord allowed Himself to be a vessel made for destruction, in order that there might be life. This was the solution that was being prepared before time, that was veiled in the Old Testament, that God was coming in the flesh to slay sin and give life. They didn't know that it was God who was going to solve the issue himself. They didn't understand the veil and the shadow. They had started to think that the law was the end instead of the means. They didn't know what his blood was doing. And this is why St. Athanasius says, For by the sacrifice of his own body, he both put an end to the law which was against us and made a new beginning of life for us by the hope of the resurrection which he has given us. For since from man it was that death prevailed over men, for this cause conversely by the word of God being made man has come about the destruction of death and resurrection of life, as the man which bore Christ says. For since by by man. For since by man be made alive and so forth. For no longer now do we die as subject to condemnation, but as men who rise. From the dead, we await the general resurrection of all. This was only accomplished in that the body that was slain was the body of gods, and that God himself would be able to raise it. Instead of understanding how God was saving them, however, they thought his aim was for them to be a nation and a powerful one. Even though God had said there would need to be a new deal, they couldn't, as many still can't today, comprehend that God would allow Himself to be touchable, to be human, and tangible. They didn't know the humility of God. They couldn't recognize the humility of God because of their deep arrogance. Because they were wise in their own wise eyes, they missed the truth. They missed the truth of the truth in front of them. That the truth incarnate was before their eyes, that this being this person that they condemned to death was the very Messiah that they were waiting for. And this cross that they spurned was his throne. The sins of the people were born in his blood that flowed over the mercy seats. Right? Is that the expiation in the Old Testament? Is that they would take that blood that we just talked about and it would be put on the mercy seat. Right? On the Ark of the Covenant, right? There was the cherubim and the seraphim on each side, and in the middle was a seat. And this was the throne of God. And so the new mercy seed became the cross, right? That the blood that was offered was now put on the mercy seed for them. Oh, what a great mystery. Earlier this week, we read an encounter between our Lord and the Jews because they didn't understand this mystery at all. And the conversation went like this. Our Lord says in front of the Jews, I go away. And you will seek me and die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. And then the Jews, very sarcastically, say, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? And our Lord responds to them, saying, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And I told you that you would die in your sins, for you will die in your sins, unless you believe that I am he the words of this hymn that we sing called I Am He. They said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Even what I told you from the beginning. He wanted them to know that he is he. But they wouldn't understand because they were hard-hearted. He continues and says, They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up The Son of Man, you will know that I am He. And the lifting up was His elevation on the cross. So, how would they know that it was He when He was on the cross? And here we see the two philosophies come to life. For those who believe in an angry Father, when they hear our Lord say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? they think that the Father has forsaken Him. Rather, our Lord, as we've talked about many times, was directing them to Scripture and revealing himself, even as he said, when you lift me up, you will know that I am he. And now he's telling them. Now he's revealing it, now that it has been accomplished, now that the devil and the humans and everyone that had been confused cannot put an end to this plan of salvation. Now is the time where he reveals to himself in plainness who he is. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if we take ourselves to this very psalm, which we will pray during the communion, um, during Joyous Saturday, why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. I am a worm and no man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The very words that we just read. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, you kept me safe upon my mother's breasts, upon you as I cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surrounded me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Yes, dogs are round about me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, and many more. Our Lord was revealing to them that this is He of whom David spoke. Yes, indeed, this is He. This is He that neither the people nor the devil himself recognized, and for this reason we declare Him solemnly. This is he of whom it was told that the seed of the woman in Genesis, not a man, because God is his father, would crush the head of the serpent. This is he that the prophets foretold would be born in Bethlehem, yet nobody would know his generation, all of these things that were veiled. This is he that would be a seed of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah, whose kingdom would be eternal. This is he of whom it was said that he would specifically be a son of David. This is he who was foretold to be called Emmanuel, and whom the angels called Emmanuel in the declaration of his nativity. This is he about whom it was foretold the children of the town of his nativity would be slaughtered. This is he of whom it was said that he would ride to Egypt on a swift cloud. This is he of whom it was said that he would be called by the people the Son of God. <coughs> this is he of whom it was declared that he would be proclaimed king. Yet this is also he of whom it was foretold that the children would praise but that his kinsmen would betray. This is he of whom it was foretold that the price of his betrayal would be used to buy a potter's field. This was he about whom it was foretold that he would be falsely accused, spat upon, and struck, and that he would be hated without a cause, and about whom it was foretold that he would be killed with criminals, and even it was told that he would supplicate and intercede for a criminal while he was in that state." This is he of whom it was foretold that he would be given vinegar to drink, that his hands and feet would be pierced, but that none of his bones would be broken, and that he would still find it in him to pray for his enemies that slay him. This is he of whom it was foretold that he would be pierced in his side, buried in a tomb of a rich man, and would be an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Yes, indeed, this is he. This is He who offered Himself as an acceptable sacrifice. The Father's plan appointed before the foundation of the earth was executed in time. The timeless entered time. He without flesh took on a body, and our God became man. This is He who in weakness has shown what is greater than might, because He did it all of his own free will. Yes, the church proclaims this is he, this is our God, and that is he that has delivered us. It is he that will slay death, it is he that will rise, and it is he that will re- reverse the pains of our humanity. Adam was disobedient in the garden. Adam, who's diso- disobedient in the garden, is not he, but our new Adam is he. He who is obedient to the Father in the garden. Adam who plucked fruit from the tree, plucking death, is replaced by he who is before us, who reigns from the tree, and feeds us from the tree of life. Adam who took the curse of mortality and suffering is redeemed in our new Adam who has undone it and granted us once again immortality. This is he who is restoring humanity again to paradise This is he who is with us, like us, and for us. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our God. To him is with the power, glory, blessing, and might forever to the age of ages. Amen. We want to thank you so much for listening to St. Basil's podcast. We hope that you have gained spiritually from our remarkable speakers, and we appreciate your support towards this podcast. St. Basil American Coptic Orthodox Church is looking to purchase a home, and we would love for you to be a part of our community. We are looking to raise funds towards this novel mission, Orthodoxy in an American context within the San Diego area. You may donate online through our website, www.stbasil.net, that's www.stbasil.net, or click on the link below and it will take you to our donations page. You may also mail in your contribution at the address located on our website. We thank you for any contribution, and may our Lord Jesus Christ always bless your heart and home.